Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there, my name is Sam Maxwell and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And I am uh, very, very happy to welcome the official Major League Baseball historian to the program tonight, and that is John Thorne. John, thank you very much for joining. Pleasure to be with you, Sam. Absolutely, and, and I, I've seen you on so many shows talking about this player and that player and this year and that year, uh, but but what I really want to know is what your earliest baseball memory is. Um, well, of course, it's flipping cards because I came to love the cards long before I watched the game on television or went to the ballpark. My first uh, memory of a ball game would be 1956 when my dad took me to the polo grounds. And courtesy of RetroSheet, I was able to find that the date was May 12th. I remembered that the left-hander Johnny Padres threw a shutout and that my hero, Duke Snyder, hit a home run. Ah, perfect. So you were a Brooklyn Dodger fan? I was. Excellent, excellent. So uh, they, they won that day? Even uh, He hit a home run? Did they, did, were they able to they won, beat the Giants? They, they won 5 to nothing. Okay. I believe, I believe Antonelli was the opponent, but I can't swear to that. Okay, and you grew up in upstate New York, am I correct? No, I grew up in the city. Uh, I was an immigrant, uh, came through Ellis Island in 1949, and lived in the Bronx until 1954 when we moved to Kew Gardens, Queens. Ah, okay. And did you you find that there were more Dodger fans in Queens than Giant fans or Yankee fans? Well, I, I don't know about more. Certainly, there weren't that many Giant fans anywhere by 1956, that's for <laughs> sure. And uh, they, were, they were determined to leave not only because they had a decrepit ballpark and uh, a welcoming home in Minneapolis at that time, uh, right. but their fan base was diminishing. The Dodgers and the Yankees were the uh, league champions year after year, even though the Giants snuck in there in 51 and 54. Of course. Exactly. It, it seems to me, and I've talked to a number of Giant fans who uh, who have stuck around. Actually, it, it seems that the the fact that Brooklyn was, you know, such a community and such a borough, uh, and and the collectively they felt offended by the uh, by by Walter O'Malley and and the excur- the uh, the exodus over to Los Angeles. And, and it seems that maybe it's because of Willie Mays, uh, but more Giants fans stuck around and followed their team to San Francisco. Um, I, I, I really, I, I can't give you any support for that impression. I can only say that when the Dodgers moved to Brooklyn, I thought it was like they were taking a summer holiday and we'd be back any moment. So right. uh, for, for a while, I continued to be an L.A. Dodgers fan, believing that this uh, preposterous move could not be permanent. Right. Uh, but when the Mets came around, did you cling to them? Not immediately. I started going to their ball games at the Polo Rounds in April of 62 uh, and watched them plenty because they were the uh, National League game in town, and you couldn't, you couldn't go from the Dodgers to the Yankees. That was an impossible move. Mm-hmm. But I think I continued to be an L.A. Dodger fan until one evening in 1965 when Sandy Koufax was starting against a Mets rookie named Tug McGraw. He was then a starter. And in the middle of the game, the Mets were leading, I think, 2-1, to one, and I realized all of a sudden I was pulling for the Mets to defeat my beloved Sandy Koufax, so something had happened. Something had clicked. Um, but over the years, uh, being a baseball historian and looking at the game from, from an 
a general view. Have you found that you really don't lean towards one team or another after all this time? Oh, no, no. My my uh, my day is made mildly better by the Mets having won the night before. I, oh, there I, you I go. follow the Mets. I, I'm ecumenical professionally, but it doesn't mean that I'm not a fan at heart. Oh, perfect. Well, of course, you know, sometimes even, even the uh, – the, the best of them who become, uh, you know, writers and, and, and whatnot, they all, it, it all just comes back after, after so long, you know. And um, when it comes to Brooklyn, obviously there's a rich history uh, of baseball in Brooklyn. And if you could give our, our listeners out there kind of an overview uh, of the rivalry between Manhattan and Brooklyn that dates all the way back to 1845 when baseball was first coming up. Well, it's easy to... Uh say that the Knickerbockers, who were a Manhattan-based club and played their games at the Elysian Fields in Hoboken, was really the start of organized ball play. But it wasn't, because there were three games played in October of 1845 that involved uh, pickup teams of Brooklyn and New York players, some of them cricket players. But they became, very shortly, the Brooklyn Baseball Club and the New York Baseball Club. And these games predated any match game played by the Knickerbockers in Hoboken. Hmm. So, in general, who seemed to, uh, uh, who seemed, what where was the tipping point uh, in, in terms of those games that, that were played, even though I'm, uh, there's not as much, much record as there is for nowadays, but uh, I'm sure that no, there no, seems, we, you we, seem we, to sound have, something. We, we have game accounts, we have box scores, Mm. And uh, it's, we have been able to trace the identities of the players and the umpires in these very early games. But when we think of Brooklyn and baseball, we think of Walt Whitman and the sundown perambulations. Mm-hmm. And that, that's from June 23, 1846 in the Brooklyn Eagle. I don't think that Brooklyn ball clubs um, really take their place in the general history of the game until the Atlantics and the Excelsiors form in the mid-1850s. After that, there were many others. There were the Eckfords, there were the Putnams, lots of fine clubs. And the great innovation of the Brooklyn clubs was that rather than seeing themselves as social clubs first and ball-playing clubs second, they recruited the best players they could find because they wanted to win. And this is what changed the landscape of baseball forever, and led to professionalism in very short order. Exactly. And there was, it was uh, a Brooklyn player who was uh, revolutionized the curveball, am I right? Mm, well, yes. Uh, Candy Cummings did pitch for the Excelsiors in the mid-1860s, and it was while he was pitching in a game at Jarvis Field in Cambridge against the Harvard Nine that he experimented with the technique he had used to flip clamshells across the Gowanus Canal. That's at least the way the legend goes. Yeah, of course. And as obviously uh, as the 1850s came and as the 1860s came, more and more immigrants uh, became, wanted to cling to baseball uh, when, when it used to be such a, a gentlemanly game, if you will, or at least in terms of the people who had organized it. Um, It was was very briefly a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant exclusive game, but you had a lot of Irish laborers, or mechanics as they were then called, some of them quite skilled from the Brooklyn shipyards, uh, were making yachts and sailing ships 
they became ball players principally with the Eckfords and the Atlantics. And the great pitcher of the 1860s was a Brooklyn pitcher, Jim Creighton, who, in my estimation, is the most important baseball player not in the Hall of Fame, in part because he died when he was 21. Mm. Yeah, that that certainly is uh, is too bad. And you'd think maybe they would uh, have um, an honorable mention, if you will, when it comes to Creighton. Um, so when when uh, you know it was getting closer to professionalism, what was the number of organized uh, of organized teams in Brooklyn compared uh, to the organized uh, teams in Manhattan? Oh, it was vastly greater because the uh, the playing fields of Manhattan were um, so few that the best Manhattan clubs moved across the Hudson River, the North River, to play uh, in New Jersey. The There were some Manhattan-based clubs that continued to play at what was then known as Jones Wood, which is East River in the mid-60s. And that was a rival site when they were talking about where to, where to place Central Park. But the the uh, other ball field, the principal ball field, was the Red House grounds up at the Second uh, Avenue and 105th Street, and that was a uh, a mecca for the uh, the trotting horse trade, and baseball was incidental as was cricket. Mm. So how did how did the gentlemen of the game take to the immigrants who were who who started clinging to baseball as a form of becoming American? Oh, uh, the Knickerbockers, who were enormously powerful in shaping the early rule changes and patterns of conduct in the 1840s and 50s, by the 1860s had become pretty much ostracized. They um, would play only against um, themselves or against rival clubs uh, composed of people of the right stuff. So they would play against the Excelsiors, but they would, ne- but they never played against the Atlantics. Too rough. Okay. Right, and those were the Excelsiors and the Atlantics were the, the uh, top tier of Brooklyn baseball. Along with the Eckfords, all, all three won championships in the 1860s. Now, before it became vastly professionalized, the Atlantics took on the Red Stockings in what is now famously known as the, the first uh, extra inning ball game. If you could detail that for our listeners who aren't as familiar as you and I are. Well, I think it's the greatest game ever played, um, even better than the Bobby Thompson game, which uh, you know has universal acclaim as the greatest of all time, or, or more lately, maybe Game 6 of the 2011 World Series. On June 14, 1870, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, who, were, who had been undefeated through all of 1869 and the early months of 1870, came to Brooklyn and uh, were defeated by the Atlantics. They had pulled into a tie at the end of nine innings, and at that time extra innings were not mandated, and a draw could have been called to the honor of both clubs. But Harry Wright of the visiting Red Stockings consented to play extra innings. And uh, marvelously, the Reds scored two in the top of the 11th, but the Atlantics scored three in the bottom of the 11th to win eight to seven. And end what a winning streak that was. That is by some figuring seventy games, by some figuring eighty-four. <laughs> that's that's just remarkable. It, it, it's, it boggles my mind that nobody had thought about that. Why, why is it that nobody had thought about uh, going extra innings before oh, that? No, moment? no, extra extra innings have been played. Okay. Um, 
in the 1850s, the uh, the winner of a game was not the, the 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 club that had the most runs at the end of nine equal innings, but the first team that scored 21 runs in equal innings. So a game could be two innings, it could be four innings, and in one case it was 12 innings. Um, so we had extra innings to the frustration of the viewers and the players, the spectators and the players, in the 1850s, which was one of the reasons for changing the mechanism by which a team would be declared a victor. I don't know that there weren't also extra inning games played prior to this one, but this was certainly the first celebrated one between two clubs of great stature. Right. And why is it that in Cincinnati, um, they lost so many players, uh, I'm sorry, so many fans, after, you know, such – I understand that fans get used to the winning, but at the same time, I, I hear the drop-off was, was great. It broke well, the, the team the up. The drop-off was great, and the Reds made no money, even in 1869, traveling all across the country and defeating all comers. Uh, I believe there, that the club's profit for the year was uh, less than $20. Huh. So, so they were paying their players such high salaries for the time. George Wright, the shortstop, made $1,400 for six months' play. Uh, other players made 1200 some made 900 some made 800 And um, this seems like a pittance today, but you have to multiply it by 30 or 40 and then uh, reflect that the adage then was that a dollar a day is very good pay. Right. Right, exactly. So when did professionalism uh, become the, the law of the land when it came to baseball, and specifically in Brooklyn? Well, professionalism entered Brooklyn play early on. Um, Al Reach, who was the second baseman of the Eckfords and went on to form a great sporting goods firm uh, that was later bought out by Spalding, Reach was offered $25 a week uh, by the Philadelphia Athletics to leave Brooklyn, and he took the money. And Lipman Pike and other members of the Atlantics of the mid-1860s were also uh, salaried players, and others would consent to uh, take a percentage of the gate. So okay. uh, the um, union grounds in Brooklyn, for example, William Kammeyer's innovation of enclosing the grounds and then charging admission in order to cover the cost of maintaining the grounds, the Admission, initially 10 cents, went up to a quarter because he had to pay the clubs. Uh, and then the clubs would disperse the, uh, the uh, proceeds to the players. Okay, okay. So by, uh, you know, by later, later in the uh, 1700s, I'm sorry, not the 1700s, the 1870s, excuse me, um, how many Brooklyn teams are there? Are they whittling a bit? Uh, the Atlantics uh, were a very unsuccessful club in the National Association, which was the first professional league around between 1871 and 75, and the same was true for the Eckfords. The, uh, the big club in New York was known as the New York Mutuals. Now, they never played on Manhattan Island. They always played their games in Brooklyn. And um, they were also a charter member of the National League of 1876, and that is the year from which we date the history of Major League Baseball. 1876. Uh, and the, the, uh, the Brooklyn team that we knew as the Dodgers, now know as the Dodgers, uh, didn't become a National League team immediately. If you could talk a little bit about the American Association 
that came into existence in 1883, and the Brooklyn team that formed from it. Yeah, the, the Brooklyn Club that entered the American Association had existed in the year before as part of the Interstate League or Interstate Association. So um, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Dodger history um, does go back to the early 1880s, and they were a very successful American Association team and represented the association in the early World Series. People think the World Series began in 1903, but that is merely the first World Series between two surviving leagues, the National and the American. The National League faced off against the American Association many times beginning in 1884. For, in fact, every year from 1884 through 1890. Okay. And so, uh, the, uh, so they actually, it, it's remarkable that they had a chance to face the Giants in the World Series, which you'd never say now, obviously. Uh, but That's right. Talk, talk a little bit about that. That was uh, 1889, am I right? 1889. And... At this time, in those years, they were experimenting with the length of the series. And in uh, 1887, it had been a 15-game series. And the winning team won by uh, the Detroit Wolverines, won 10 of the 15 games. And they played out the entire slate because it was a uh, caravan with different locations. It, were, it wasn't just jockeying forth between the home fields of the two clubs involved. The, the whole thing was treated as a grand exhibition touring neutral sites. By 1889, the, uh, they had fixed it as a best of 11, so the team that won six games uh, would conclude the series at that point, and they wouldn't, have to, they wouldn't play the remaining games to a dwindling crowd. Right, of course. And in the 1889 series, Brooklyn went out ahead, won three of the first four, and uh, looked to be in good shape against the New York Giants. And then um, game six, which would have given, you know, Brooklyn was leading one nothing going into the bottom of the ninth, and had they won, it would have given them a 4-2 to two edge and a likely series victory. But then you have what I think is the most uh, compelling late-game performance of the early years, and you can only match it up against, say, the David Freeze heroics of 2011. With giant shortstop um, John Ward going to two strikes with two outs and nobody on in the bottom of the ninth, and then getting a single, and stealing second, stealing third, and scoring on an infield single by Roger Connor to tie the game. And then in the 11th inning, he drove in the winner, so this brought the Giants into a 3-2 situation, and Brooklyn never won another game in the series and lost it 6-3. Six, to three. Huh. six games to three. It's, it's just remarkable that they would keep playing, but I understand when you're caravanning, you, you, you want to, you know, you have, you've promised places games, and you've got to keep going. Precisely. And some of these World Series games... Um, drew crowds of two and 3,000, and sometimes if the weather was cold, in the hundreds. There was, however, one game, and I believe it was game two in Brooklyn of this 1889 series, where you had 16,000 fans show up, which was by far the largest crowd for any early World Series. And where was that in Brooklyn? Uh, it would have been Washington Park. 
Ah, okay, and it's the same spot that is now a city park. That is now a city park, you say? Well, the Washington Park that I know of at Third at, uh, Street and Fourth Avenue in Brooklyn, uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure if I think there might have been two different Washington Park locations, but where the Dodgers last played before they went to Ebbets Field is now a city park. Well, uh, you're you're better versed than I on uh, what is where in Brooklyn today. Ah, right. And oh, uh, it is, it is, you know, they played at Eastern Park before they played at Washington Park. So uh, I'm dim on the precise date of the opening of Washington Park. Well, I think, like you said, though, that the, the Brooklyn, uh, the Brooklyn game brought sixteen thousand, which says a lot about how passionate Brooklynites have always been about baseball and have always been about sports. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to view it. Uh, the, the city of Brooklyn ceased to be in 1898 and merged with Manhattan, and it was the only borough that came. Uh, every, every other borough, I think, was unanimous, and Brooklyn, I think, passed by one vote to become part of the city of New York, the greater city of New York. And, and more than any other uh, two boroughs, Manhattan and Brooklyn just have this have this uh, uh, this rivalry that, like, as we said, dates all the way back to uh, prior to it becoming uh, uh, one part of one city. And, and what, are, what are some of these, these feelings, what are some of the raw feelings that still exist there, and why is that, do you think, uh, in your view? Well, Brooklyn was regarded as farm country and farmers and rubes and hayseeds by the Manhattanites. And the fact that you had to take a ferry across the river until the Brooklyn Bridge went up in 1883. Uh, Brooklyn was a city of churches and the city of taverns. And um, Manhattanites always turned their noses up toward Brooklyn. And, and those who uh, grew up in Brooklyn and um, wanted to cut their teeth in the literary or artistic or theatrical world had to do so in New York. They had to go into Manhattan. Walt Whitman, uh, the poet of Brooklyn, made his early uh, career in Manhattan before returning to Brooklyn. That's, that's interesting. Um, Walt, Walt Whitman is somebody that I still have to be uh, more versed in past the, the famous uh, uh, Brooklyn Eagle uh, article that he wrote about finding baseball and athleticism in general. Uh, well, and, and I, I commend him to your attention, and whether you are listening to this show because you're a baseball fan or you're a Brooklyn fan, uh, Whitman is America's great poet, and you come to appreciate him more with each passing year. So I, I will say that I love Whitman now in a way I did not when I was in my 20s. Uh, there you go. And uh, to everybody out there, go pick up a Walt Whitman book, and I will do the same very, very uh, soon. And, and so... Do you do you think uh, it, it's it's really um, the rivalry between New York and Brooklyn is is really going to, to be spiced up more now that the the Nets are back in, involved and now now that professional sports is back in Brooklyn? I don't know which is the the horse and which is the cart. Whether the um, whether the uh, hipsterism of Brooklyn over the last twenty years has uh, bred more confidence among Brooklynites against their Manhattan brethren, or whether, uh, sp whether sports is going to spur an even greater civic consciousness. I think Brooklyn has always regarded itself as a separate city long after 
the Great Consolidation of 98. And that explained the rivalry in part between the Dodgers and the Yankees because it wasn't merely um, baseball. It was also civic. Mm-hmm. And you, if you were Brooklyn, you were resentful against the way New Yorkers regarded you. And maybe that's still so. Um, I know that if, if you were working in Manhattan and you were a young person, you figured you had to live in Brooklyn. You had to find an apartment in Brooklyn because you couldn't afford Manhattan. Now you can't afford Brooklyn, so you have to look to, uh, what, Astoria, Staten yep. Island. yep. Uh, you know, as somebody who needs to get an apartment soon, I have to say that I'm going to be looking towards Woodside and Sunnyside and Queens. Yeah, well, Brooklyn is becoming very pricey and very chic. And uh, in a way, this seems a departure in character from the Brooklyn of the previous 150 years, say. Right. I can't remember Brooklyn being chic. I can't remember Williamsburg being hot. Well, uh, you know, let me personally say that it is not one of my favorite aesthetic uh, bur- uh, um, neighborhoods in Brooklyn. I, I, I happen to like uh, other neighborhoods a lot more, even though there's certainly a lot going on in Williamsburg. Um, but anyway, it's all, it, it is all good. Certainly, Manhattan is a place uh, where the, the middle class cannot easily live, and young people have to uh, gang up in a studio apartment uh, to... Uh, Manage their finances while they make their way in their careers. Exactly. I was, I was going to say that when I when I think about Manhattan and and Brooklyn and the rivalry, I always go back to the Bill Terry quote, and uh, I, I'd rather not say it uh, since I know so much about it, obviously. But I, I know that you uh, have such a vast knowledge. If you can give us a little bit of a background as to the the Bill Terry quote about Brooklyn in the 1930s. Well, it wasn't. I don't know the quote about Brooklyn as such, but I do know the Terry quote uh, about being, you know, a reporter asked whether he was concerned about having to play games against Brooklyn during the pennant race, mm-hmm. and his response was, is Brooklyn still in the league? Right. And if this is the quote you're referring to, I don't have great detail for you. I, I, I believe it would have been in 1933-34 uh, in that area. Well, I believe that, yeah, and, I, you know, that I think sums up the way they rally around their ball club based off of their feelings about uh, uh, their home and, and kind of the inferiority complex they had and, and somebody always calling them out for being less than, if you will. And well, this uh, the, this, Sam, this is the experience of all minorities. They, they, they take the abuse that's thrown at them and they transform it into fuel and glue. It drives their actions and it binds them together. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it is remarkable, like you say, uh, you know, you've never thought of Brooklyn as chic, but it's, 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 Brooklyn's always reinvented itself. And, and so there's, there's uh, so many different things and so many different places that the, 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 uh, the borough can go right now. And uh, though personally I can't see myself ever switching from the Knicks just because uh, they're, they're so ingrained, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that when the Islanders move, maybe I will personally finally have my own Brooklyn ball, uh, ball club. Or uh, uh, yes. Puff Club, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, possibly. And, you know, um, if Major League Baseball does expand to 32 clubs at some point in the future, and I can tell you for sure it's not being contemplated at this moment, yeah. 
it is not ridiculous to think of the New York metropolitan area supporting three major league clubs. The territorial uh, it, rights, of course, would right. be a nightmare of litigation. Of course. But, uh, but uh, all things are possible. Well, thinking about that, you know, more than ever they could support three ball clubs, and they used to support it when there was half of this population. No, actually, no. The population of uh, greater of metropolitan New York probably, uh, well, the, uh, the population of the five boroughs has not changed since its peak in the um, late 50s, early 60s. I think it was like 7.8 million, and now maybe it's 8.1, 8.2. It, it is the surrounding areas, the suburbs, greater, greater, greater metropolitan New York that has expanded. Right. Well, John, uh, I know you're a very busy man, and, and uh, I don't want to keep you, uh, but I, I very much appreciate it. And if there's any uh, last tidbit you'd like to leave uh, our listeners with before uh, we, we go, please, by all means. Uh, I, have, I have no tidbits, but I will tell you that these days I'm thinking a lot about the early years in Los Angeles and the Brooklyn transplants and uh, Kofax and Reed Hodges early years in L.A., and I'm, and I'm thinking about the 1959 World Series and Larry Sherry, who won two and saved the other two, and nobody's done that since. There you go. Well, thank you very, very much, John, and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Sam. Absolutely. That's our show, everybody. Have a good one. Take care.